Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors explore how they get their ideas through a series of objects they bring into the studio. I'm Katie Brand and today my guest is well known to this parish. She was on this podcast a few years ago talking to Richard E. Grant about her memoir, which was then adapted into the Kennedys for BBC One. And she's also very well known to me. I asked for advice aged 18 and then later she became the script editor for my TV series. Happily, she's brought along her inspirational objects, which include a button, a robin and some sweet peas. It's only Emma Kennedy. Hello. Oh, it's only me. Welcome. <laughs> Howdy doody. I didn't mean only as in you're somehow not of great significance. I meant as in it's only like as in I can't believe it. I mean, I mean, are you offended already? I mean, both of those things are applicable. Yes. Yes, okay, so it's fine. Enough. It works on every level. Will you take which one you want? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to proceed with a I'm going to walk the line of ambiguity throughout yeah, and see well, whether I hope so. you're flattered or offended. I hope so. Okay. You you are the greatest whippersnapper of my life. Am so, I? Yes, you are. I'm going to have that put on some sort of necklace. It'll be a long <laughs> necklace. <laughs> so before we move on to your object and your book, uh, The Things We Left Unsaid, uh, which is brilliant. I've loved reading it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Shall we explain the advice thing? Because I have some recollection of sitting on your Lap. Yes. So I do believe I was sitting in uh, the Pleasance Courtyard in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. minding, uh, very much minding my own business. The year would have been 1998. It would have been 1998. Mm-hmm. And uh, you came bounding over to me. I was in of, a student comedy show. You were the Oxford Review. Yes. And you came sort of running at me at a pelt. Mm. Uh, like like a like a small puppy, <laughs> I I, th- I think a medium sized puppy, a medium sized puppy, yeah. Mm. Uh, actually, what 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 puppy would you be? Do you think? I think I'd be a kind of Labrador Rottweiler mix. I think that sums up my personality. Yes, I'm not going to disagree with okay, you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Such so, a hybrid ever been achieved. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the Labrador Rottweiler mix yep. came bounding over to me. I think you just plonked yourself on my lap. Yeah. Straight off the bat. There, there was no mucking about. And then asked me to tell you how to, to do well in life. How to crack comedy and mm. and everything and life and everything. Mm. And you were very nice to me and you gave me lots of advice and um, then just gently sort of tipped me off your lap and sent me on my way. <laughs> um, you were very kind and generous with your time. And then years later, I met you having done my first TV series on ITV and we met at a Radio 4 thing, I think. And, what I, and I hadn't seen you since. And you came up to me and just said... Right. Have you got a script editor? Yes, I did. And I said no. And you said, because you need one. Yes. <laughs> I did. And then you became the script editor. And then I became that person, and, yes. And the show vastly improved as a result. And, and we did two more you, series. Whipped you into shape. You did. You did whip me into shape. And in the meantime, you have also become yourself a very, very successful, highly regarded writer for TV and radio and books. And we're here to talk mainly today about your new book, The Things We Left Unsaid. So how did the idea come about? The germ of it sort of began uh, when my mother died. And um, I had a very complicated relationship with my mother. How long ago did she die? She died five years ago. Mm. I loved her fiercely, 
but I struggled to like her. Mm-hmm. She spent the vast majority of her life, certainly after I came along, suffering from uh, an undiagnosed mental illness. And when I was born, she had postpartum psychosis. And back then in 1967, nothing was ever done about that. Mm. I think that tipped her on the path to all the troubles that, that she had to deal with and and suffer for the rest of her life. But what was extraordinary was that it sort of took me until my mid-30s to really understand that she wasn't awful, she was ill. Mm-hmm. So... That was sort of the starting point of it. And although that situation isn't addressed in in the book, what I wanted to address was the notion of how we don't really know who our parents are. We have no idea of who they were before we came along. Mm. So that was the springboard for it. And it centres around the sort of parallel stories of Eleanor, who is the mother figure who grew up as an artist in the 60s and became an extremely famous and successful artist and we flip between her life then and now with her daughter Rachel who has been um, jilted at the altar uh, and has sort of come home or come to her mother's house just partly because she doesn't really know where else to go and they try to have some kind of connection that is then sort of slightly prematurely ended yes, and Rachel it's thwarted. yes it's thwarted but Rachel tries to find out more about her mother yes and the the kind of two stories tessellate as we go along so we kind of flip quite excitingly between 1960s Soho and the art scene and there's references to Francis Bacon and all of that and then now was that something you did deliberately you wanted to juxtapose being a young woman in the 60s and being a young woman now or was it yes. more about character it was absolutely that actually interestingly I'm carrying on the theme of of this in the the, the current book I'm writing now, which is about Agnes, Mm. who is in the book, who Who is the younger sister. Sister of the mother, yes. And the next book is set in nine all in nineteen seventy one and about that the the sexual revolution that occurred after everyone had read Fear My Eunuch. Mm -hmm. But in nineteen sixty four it was sort of the start of that first wave of of sexual revolution. It's sort of extraordinary to me now the difference between what it was like to be a woman in 1950 and what it was like to be a woman in 1960 and then it exploded again in 1970. Mm. And we have so many freedoms now. It's still quite recent, isn't it? It's like we're only just... If women are economically powerful and independent and we don't need men to buy us a house or buy us anything... Yeah, you couldn't get a mortgage. Yes, but it's a very recent development. It's it's sort of no wonder that everything's still quite mm. turbulent in that respect. It's all very I, recent. I, I don't think a woman could get a mortgage until 1974. You can't even get your head around it no. now, can you? No. I remember the first time I tried to get a mortgage and I was earning quite a lot of money at, mm. the, at that point... And I still couldn't get one. It was ex- I, had, I had to go to like a, a dodgy, dodgy fella round the back of a <laughs> round the back of a pub to get a mortgage, <laughs> and then like have that dodgy fella round the back of the pub mortgage for two years, and then I was allowed to have a, a mortgage with a sensible institution. Like a, sort of Sheila's wheels for mortgages. <laughs> yes, and you and I, with our economic and financial prowess, Emma, could maybe set that up right now. May, well, maybe we could do that. It yes. could be just you and me. <laughs> 
And we could just sit in a, in a room, we could have a little office yeah. and there could be a queue of women coming out and they mm-hmm. could come in and they could just show us what they're made of. Yeah, and we could agree all the mortgages, but we obviously wouldn't have any of the capital <laughs> to back it up. <laughs> yes, you can have a mortgage. Here, here you go. Oh, no, this looks a little... like a, suspiciously like a cupcake. <laughs> no, that's have you, a mortgage. Have you made no, this? No, that is a mortgage. Have you made this certificate <laughs> and painted it with tea? Uh, we, we've, we, you can colour it in yourself. It, it doubles up. It's actually just a, a colouring picture of Ryan Gosling. Here you go. <laughs> I'd settle for that. That's a mortgage. Well, let's move on to your first object, which is a bouquet of flowers. It's a photo. Uh, we didn't have, we didn't get any actual flowers. That is significant because that's about Rachel in, mm-hmm. in the book that, that that we start, and it's all gone very, very wrong on the day of her wedding. Mm. Have you ever experienced that? Myself. No, not yourself, but like, <laughs> with, like, do you know someone? I don't know anyone who's been jilted on the day. No, do you? Yes. Do you? Yes, I do. As well as the upset that that kicks in, it's the awkwardness of it. It's the watching the the photographer just quietly pack up all his things. It's what do you what do you do about the food? Mm. Are you, are you supposed to have a drink? There must come a point where everyone just realizes what's going on mm. and then sort of accepts it and starts to go home. Yeah. Yeah, Very odd. Yeah, yeah, because you genuinely don't know what to do. Because it's so against every single decent norm. It's really properly startling. Mm. That was the starting point for what does that do to an individual and then how that forces you to then go back home when really you don't want... I mean, I, I suspect most women in their 30s, the thought of moving back home with their parents is is a is a deep horror Mm -hmm. that's the other tension in the book is that Rachel wishes that she was an artist and she has some skill but Mm. she doesn't have the confidence to pursue it because her mother is so successful which is also very difficult Mm. in terms of if you've got the same talent Mm. and why wouldn't you have if it's partly inherited as a Mm. very successful parent Mm. what are you going to do I mean it is you're just sort of locked in really I know it's like the 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 Liza Minnelli Judy Garland thing Mm. although Liza Minnelli is genuinely also brilliant she is amazing which is is. fortunate I mean some would say she's better than Garland controversial (sighs) goodness me Controversial. That is controversial. Controversial. Especially now with the new film out. I, I was get to- your controversial opinions out now. I, I was told an amazing story about Liza Minnelli by by the man who used to drive her around town. Go on then. This was when she was with David Guest. He said that she would get into the car and then they'd have to wait two hours for, for David to get in. And then once he was in, she would only communicate with him via the medium of song. So, so she would go, where are we going? <laughs> We're going to the North Circular. <laughs> and apparently that's how it went. <laughs> right, so you've written children's books. 
Um, yes, I have. Um, Wilma Tenderfoot. Yes. Um, you've written a thriller. Your memoirs, obviously, The Tent, The Bucket and Me, and I Took My Tent to San Francisco. Yes. All brilliant, brilliant books. Thank you. And this is your first, I think, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, work in what is generally for ease described as women's fiction. It is as the a first genre. foray yes. into the genre that is women. <laughs> <laughs> what I, led you into this uh, new genre for you? I was asked. OK, very good. <laughs> I was paid. <laughs> I was paid actual money. I've never thought of myself as a, as an auteur. When you say auteur, you mean as in you're not sort of trying to write I'm, literary I'm not, fiction. I am not a. Li- I am yes. I am not. I do not see myself as a as a literary writer with um, sort of great artistic sort of pretensions yeah. to protect you're you're like i just want to write stuff. well well exactly i like i like telling stories yeah mm. i mean there's that sort of section of of, li- of literary writing where I mean, I mean they get away with murder to be honest you, you, your book only has to be seventy thousand words and you don't have to have an ending <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 what i've discovered do you know what I, I was i to my shame i have never read the handmaid's tale okay never read it and i thought i must read it and i read it and I, and i've always had this theory that books that that are up for the booker and and big prizes they never have endings katie they never have endings no, it's and lo and behold <laughs> the end of the handmaid's tale where's the ending yes <laughs> where yeah, is no, it nothing ever resolves where is it yeah where is it i will put down money that the great Margaret Atwood was just sitting at her desk one day and just thought, ah, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> that'll do. She gets into the back of her van. That'll do. <laughs> and it was all a dream. Yeah, that'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but so you, but with the with the books I write, you have to you have to come up with an ending. You have to have Act you have Five. To actually finish it. You have to have Act Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you like that? Do you find that creatively satisfying? Or would you sometimes just like to go, she gets in the back of a van? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you know, it's quite funny you say this, is because literally yesterday I handed in um, the, the phase one of draft one mm-hmm. of my book. I sent it off to my editor, knowing full well that I have tried to pull a fast one by not having an ending. <laughs> <laughs> and that was literally like, oh, I'm going on holiday on Wednesday. Shall I just finish the book today? Yeah, yeah I'll finish the book today. I mean, this will get fixed down the line. But yeah. I'm literally chancing my arm just to see if it works. <laughs> Did you write the end at the end just to sort of see if, just to make sure everyone knew? Oh, I didn't do that. Now well, I'm furious If you with write myself. the end... Then that, you may find that's enough. Absolutely furious. <laughs> See, now I know that proper writers can get away with not writing Act Five. It's very tempting to 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 not try and get away with it yourself. No, you have to wait about sort of twenty years and write Act Five and then sell a hundred thousand copies in a day. That's that's the trick. <laughs> See, this is why Margaret Atwood is so very clever. Yes. It is mm. and successful. Yeah, but you're doing, you know, you're doing your your sequel. You've yes, written I it, am. Agnes. Yes. yes. So often with these things, with writers and our perception of writers and successful writers, it is very much about the literary fiction. Of course, there's the genre fiction writers who are commercially hugely successful and rightly highly respected. But people still, when they say I want to be a writer, mm. they don't tend to think of it in the way that you're describing your life and your work and your attitude to it. I sort of feel like we should hear more from people like you. About 
about people who aren't kind of necessarily chasing uh, some sort of immense artistic legacy that just want to be writing, that just enjoy writing. It reminds me yeah, of it's, it's Danielle Steele writing yeah, seven it's, books it's, a year. Yeah, it's a job. Yes. It's a job. I mean, if, if I had at the very beginning picked one genre and stuck to it... Um, I would probably be a vastly more successful <laughs> uh, writer in, in the book arena. There's, there's no doubt about that. But that's not who I am. Mm. I I have to do different things all the time. And as you've Otherwise got old... I get bored. Um, well, I, I simi- I'm similar in that respect. And do you, as you've got older, have you just embraced that and accepted that? Did you try and fight it early in your career and think, no, oh, I have to specialise? No, I, to- I don't think I was that, that, that astute, if I'm <laughs> being honest. Also, also, a lot of your work has drawn on your family and the quirks of you know, family secrets, not just about parents, but uh, but you wrote Shoes for Anthony based on your father's childhood. And also you said that Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals has been a huge influence on you. Secrets and quirkiness in family members. Is that that something you've always loved since you were a little girl? I know you don't have siblings. Were you very much sort of just engaged in looking around and trying to figure out these weird adults? I I spent most of my time in the company of adults, actually, as a child. The thing for me that I'm interested in is about the amazing platonic friendship that you have or are capable of having. I mean, certainly from my point of view, when I I was an only child, that one great, amazing, incredible platonic friendship that normally happens sort of at the beginning of their 20s, end of their teens, Mm. uh, that sort of shapes the person who they're going to be forever. And it's not sexual, but that you love them as more than you would someone you were going out with, but Mm. you know that there is an end to it. It's like you can see it coming. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that really interests me, Mm. those sort of relationships. And Eleanor and a character called Jake have that sort of relationship in The Things We Left Unsaid. Uh, And Jake is a fellow art student, who then later reveals that he's perhaps not the man Eleanor hoped he was in, yes. in terms of what she wanted from him. Yes. But he does make her a beautiful jacket. He does. With some beautiful buttons. Buttons! Which is your next object. Um, you've brought in a tin of buttons here. Yes. So what? What the button is is quite an intrinsic part of the plot. Was it I, that it was you love the device of having something which kind of compounds the mystery and furthers the plot? Or was there something about buttons in particular I, that you love? I'll tell you what it is, is... Most mums or grandmothers would have a, a an old tin that was full of buttons mm-hmm. and every single button is a memory mm. to a moment in your life or in your family. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at a button box and think, well, that's just a load of buttons, but it isn't. Mm. You know, it could be your, your first coat, it could be um, your first school blazer. Mm-hmm. And in the book, there is a moment where Rachel finds a a button box. Mm. And bearing in mind that that she has always thought uh, that her mother wasn't that interested in in her and was aloof and was separate. And, and, And the sort of the emotional devastation of discovering that actually her mother has been quietly hoarding small little trinkets of love. Mm and what that does to you. It can be very moving and powerful to find the evidence that all those feelings were there. Mm. 
It's just, they're not easily presented. And an even more powerful thought is, I think most people, when you say, you know, do did your mum and dad love you? I think most people will say, yes. Did your mum and dad like you? Different thing entirely. Mm. Well, what's sort of the challenge of your book is to try to find the things to like in your family before it's too late. Yes, exactly so. And I know that, you, you know, you, you've done a bit of talk about this in the press, sort of in the lead up to the publication of the book. And, and a lot of people responded, I noticed on social media, very strongly to that message of do try to find connections with people before it's too late. And is that something you've kind of taken to heart yourself as well? 100%. 100%. I think that, that my experience with my mother, if it has taught me anything, is that you can't fix anything when they're gone. Mm. And uh, I have to live with that now for the rest of my life, sadly. Mm. I wish I didn't, but I do. I'm quite uh, taken aback by how affected I have been by that. Mm. And has the writing of this book been cathartic for you in some way or, ther- or therapeutic? So. Or? Yeah, very much so. I, I think through Rachel helping her to sort of cut, to, to, to find peace with a complicated relationship um, and to find that, that she got the answers that, that she needed was enormously helpful. Hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the research that you did for the book. I know you talk about that a bit in the acknowledgements at the end and there's a lot in Eleanor's story about Soho in the 60s uh, and the artists and journalists hanging out at the iconic places there like the French House and so on and Francis Bacon makes an, a sort of oblique appearance. So what, what was it that led you to put Eleanor, the mother's story, in that time? What do you... You always loved that time. Yes, I I've read loads of books about uh, about what Soho was like in the fifties and sixties. Prior to writing this, prior to you just like that period. Yes, yes, I really do. And it was that real sense of just a wonderful, amazing, creative, electric place to have been. And I think location is very important in in stories and and the identity of of any given location. When you think about it, at the French, which is the pub that, that that features, I mean, you could go in there any given lunchtime or evening, and you would be bumping into Dylan Thomas, Lucian Freud, all these amazing people. I actually read once that Dylan Thomas left the only manuscript for Under Milkwood Correct. in a pub. Correct, he did in the French. He and left it under he a was, stall, and he was so drunk. In and the Radio Four producer panicked when they discovered this because he'd brought it up specially. His, he was only coming it, it, yeah, to London and, and to deliver it and it was the only copy. And this Radio 4 producer just absolutely flipped and ran there and found it. Yeah. And Under Milkwood was saved. <laughs> I love it. He's come all the way from Wales to London with his one copy of Under Milkwood purely with the only aim of delivering it's it amazing, to Radio 4 and it? then got drunk in Soho and left it. <laughs> It puts some of my transgressions uh, back in the sort of back into perspective. But it, we, we don't have that anymore. You know, there, there isn't there isn't that sense of the the place where it's all happening. Mm. And um, and I don't know if we ever will again have that. You no. know, it's not quite... Chilton Firehouse isn't quite cutting it, is no. it, really? Well, I think, you know, there, there was a little bit of it knocking around when even when I was starting out doing comedy sort of 
15 or 20 years ago around the sort of the Phoenix and there were sort of little clubs and drinking dens and jerries and all of that sort of mm. thing and underground drinking places that would stay open all night mm. and that sort of thing. But even that feels like it's gone with the kind of increasing rents and all of these sort of places. There's been a bit of a clear out in Soho recently yeah. that lots and lots of people comment on almost daily saying, mm. oh, this is gone now, this is gone now. And it's- also people people don't really go to pubs anymore. Yes, you know, since since we could buy uh, uh, alcohol in supermarkets and we have twenty four hour licensing, mm-hmm. people don't go to pubs. No, I can't remember the last time I went to a pub. Really, no. you did buy buy a tin of alcohol from Marks and Spencer's, <laughs> and you don't have to talk to anyone. But, I mean, but that was the other thing that back in nineteen sixty four. It ha- there were very strict licensing hours, mm. and it was twelve till till two, mm. and then opening up again at at, at six. Mm. Um, and so, when people did meet, it was sort of intense, and yes. sort of you've been waiting all day, really, yeah. to sort of be around and go and meet people and share some gossip, and yeah. and that sense of community, I think. Yeah. And as people become more successful, like Eleanor in the book becomes a more successful artist, and I think anyone who has started out you know, with a little gang, whether that's in live comedy or whatever it is, that as you become more successful, you're or busier or you just can't physically get there or whatever it is, travelling a lot more. That's the thing I think people really miss is having that little creative gang, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Um, which mean, you I, capture very I, I well. I mean, you all remember this, you know, your first Edinburgh's. Mm. And I have a very vivid memory of the first couple of Edinburgh's I went to mm. and, and meeting Mel Gedroy, Simon Munnery, mm-hmm. you know, Al Murray, Leon Herring, all these people, mm. Dave Schneider, mm. Armando. And it's, it is wonderful um, to think back about sleeping under a coffin and yes. everyone in the room having athlete's foot mm-hmm. and the two bins and one was full of cornflakes and the other one was full of pasta. Well, we had 14 students in a flat designed for three yep. with a branch of Lloyd's Bank underneath, which we flooded five times Amazing. over the course of the first Amazing. <laughs> one toilet. Okay, I can slightly beat that. <laughs> the entire OTG, 62 members, mm-hmm. were all <laughs> sleeping in a Masonic lodge and there wasn't even a shower. <laughs> there was one hand basin. So that was the Oxford Theatre group, yeah, right? I yes. had two baths in six weeks. Yes. I've been. God. It was unbelievable. Yes, and, yet, and I was happy. Yes, very I was happy. So happy. Well, the stakes are low, aren't they? That's the yeah. thing: is that you're not worried. You don't have a reputation to protect, or indeed no. a mortgage. Yeah. Right. Let's move on to your next object, which is um, a robin, the robin, a live robin that you've brought in yes. that's been <laughs> sat on your <laughs> finger. That is how Just it sounds. Beautifully behaved. Do that again. <laughs> That is the shush pipe down, the, Mr. Robin. Yeah. You beautifully shush. behaved Robin that you've brought in here. <laughs> Just a little insight into your writing day there in your shed. Because you do have a writing shed uh, at the bottom of the garden, don't I you? Do, well, I used to. I okay. now have a proper office. Oh, is it still in? Is it separate I've from moved, the house? Obviously. Yes. No, it's, oh, okay. it's very much in the house. So you're missing the robins, I presume. I miss. Well, I've got the robins in the garden. Okay, but no, I got the robin because I was told a story once, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. That uh, robins are supposed to be the souls of loved ones coming back to say hello, which is why they 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 stay close. That to is you. lovely, and it's just a lovely idea. I'm going to feel so. I ran with that that's in nice. the book. 
also slightly creepy. A little bit creepy. But have you ever... I, 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 have you ever I, seen two robins fighting? They're very aggressive and very territorial. Furious ghosts. They're just, I know. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to our previous house where there were two robins who fought to the death oh, over Lord. a small patch of garden. So I wonder who that yeah, was. they do kick off. Who could that have been they from can... my life? <laughs> <laughs> they can kick off. Imagine they, how frustrating it must have been to be one of those robins if they were the souls of... of Formally, just trying just to tell leave, me something. Just leave me alone. I'm trying. I'm just trying to get her a message about a, about a dodgy step. I'm going to sit near it so she sees it. I'm shouting my head off all day, yeah. and all she does is take pictures and show them to her husband, yeah. and then goes out as if nothing's wrong in the world. Yes. Do you remember? Well, you won't remember John Betjeman because obviously neither of us knew John Betjeman on a personal level. Um, I'll I, go with it though, <laughs> dear John. Dear, dear John. I um he's buried in 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 Cornwall somewhere, I think. And, Cornwall. And I think so, somewhere oh. in Cornwall. And wherever it was, I was sitting in the graveyard where John Betjeman is buried. Mm-hmm. I was sitting and my legs were stretched out and a robin came and sat on the end of my shoe. And do you think that was John Betjeman? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Come John. Friendly bums. <laughs> do you want a mortgage? <laughs> The, today's mortgage are in the shape of some sunflower seeds. The bleakest robin you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think it's a lovely idea. I really, really do. I think it's a lovely idea, the notion that through birds, kind of previous previous loved ones can come back and sort of tell you things and look after you and mm. all of that sort of stuff. Nice. I think it's very nice. And let's move swiftly on, whilst we're on the subject of nature, to your final object then, uh, which is sweet peas. Sweet peas. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, this, so this again goes back to um, the sense, uh, a very strong sense of place in the book. And because Soho, 60s Soho, is so tethered and strong, I needed to... Uh, replicate that in Rachel's world and so I incorporated the garden in the cottage where they live and this also came about because I I set myself a challenge every year and the year I was writing this book my challenge was I had to do a gardening course so I was learning a lot about you know flowers and Mm-hmm. Sweet peas and lupins, mm-hmm. etc. So I thought, well, the, the, you know, who doesn't like who doesn't like a garden? Nobody. So I thought I would put that in. There is a, no- a lovely strand of the gardening and the gardener mm. uh, yes. throughout the book, yes. which Casper offers the garden. Casper the gardener, which offers some hope to Rachel uh, yeah. in her garden, and obviously kind of fulfills that glimmer of hope and and sort of the fizz of something perhaps unexpected it, it, or anticipated. Yeah, I suppose it's more than that, I, I think, as well, because the, the garden was Eleanor's unfinished business mm. and there there is that sense of people can come and go, but gardens will 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 always be there, mm. and especially plants that, that can live for decades. Yes, there's that funny idea. Often you see people talking about moving house or people who are elderly or lived in one place for a long time and have spent a lot of time on their garden. Is that They can be quite ambivalent about leaving the house, but they don't want to leave the garden. Yeah. This garden it's, is my life's it work. It is amazing how attached you can become to mm. plants that you have grown. Mm. Right, well, let's listen to a bit now. We've been talking a lot about the things we left unsaid by Emma Kennedy, my guest today, and it's where Rachel decides to write a letter to the man who has stood her up at the altar as a form of therapy, and it's also very funny. So let's have a listen to that now. Dear Claude, she wrote, 
She stopped and ripped out the piece of paper, screwed it into a ball and tossed it to one side. Again. Claude. There was so much she wanted to say to him, and yet pen poised she suddenly had nothing. It wasn't writing she needed to get out of her system. It was shouting. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. She underlined the last you with a furious scribble. She sat back, tore the page out, screwed it up, and started again. Claude, Agnes told me to write to you. She thought it might be cathartic. I have no idea where you are. I have no idea why you did it. Your lack of kindness has been breathtaking. I can only imagine how little you thought of me, how tiny your regard. Perhaps there is something wrong with you. Do you have an illness? Are you dying? Were you trying to spare me a secret pain? When did you decide you were going to do it? A minute before, an hour, a day, a week, a month? Perhaps you wanted to tell me before Charlie died and you couldn't. For future reference, if your fiancé's father dies and you think, fuck it, I'm not that into her, just tell her there and then. You could have told me when my forehead was on the back of his cold hand. You could have told me the worst news in the world in that moment and it wouldn't have touched me. But waiting until the day? No, Claude. No. That was The Things We Left Unsaid, read and written by my guest Emma Kennedy. And just a little note to subscribe to the Penguin podcast so you don't miss new free episodes twice a month and hear audio extracts from new books free. You can find us at sites like Apple Podcasts or Spotify via a podcast app or on your Alexa-enabled device. Have you ever done that? Have you ever written a letter, to a furious letter or, or a sort of cathartic letter to get something off your chest and then torn it up or burnt it? Oh, so many times. Have you? Yeah. Have you ever written one to me? No. Okay, thanks. That's what this whole interview's been leading up to. <laughs> <laughs> my perennial question to anyone, are you cross with me? Just no, my ticker no, tape at the no, bottom. with you, I carved things into stone. <laughs> okay. Then um, threw them at a pane of glass. <laughs> you're just going to have to go on, on a lot of cliff walks and find them. <laughs> hang on, what does... Hang on, what's this saying? Have you this, left me a sort of... In this granite, what's... Who, it's, it's signed Emma Kennedy. <laughs> What's on earth? You've left me a kind of sort of treasure map <laughs> yes. throughout the British Isles. Yes, I have. Carved into rocks and left in piles of cans. <laughs> Do better. <Yeah. laughs> You've left one message at the top of every Munro. And I yes. my challenge yes, is to find them. Yes, I have, Katie Brand. <laughs> it, it does help. I've written letters. Or my, my favourite thing is to write furious emails to someone and then just send them to myself. Um, so at least I've written it. And, and I also think, oh, it's there if I ever do want to send it, but hesitate before sending it. Yeah, I I did that once and accidentally sent it. Oh, good, good. That did that work go, out no, well? No, it went down very badly. <laughs> <laughs> and around that time, mm. I became a solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it's been fantastic talking to you today, Emma. Thank you. It's always an absolute pleasure to talk to you and see you. And thank you very much, Emma, for joining us today. My pleasure. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio, the standalone new novel from Jojo Moyes, the number one best-selling author of Me Before You. England, 
late 1930s, Alice Wright makes an impulsive decision to marry wealthy American Bennett Van Cleve, leaving her home behind. When small-town Kentucky is not the adventure Alice was hoping for, she meets Marjorie O'Hare, a troublesome woman and daughter of a notorious felon. Marjorie is on a mission to spread the magic of books and she needs Alice's help. Trekking through the wilderness, these women will discover freedom and friendship. That very morning in church, Pastor McIntosh had spent almost two hours declaiming the sinners who were apparently plotting ungodly dominance around the little town, and was now fanning himself and looking disturbingly ready to speak again. Put your shoes back on, Bennett murmured. Someone might see you. It's this heat, she said. They're English feet. They're not used to these temperatures. The multi-award winning Julia Whelan narrates this remarkable true story, which is available to download from Audible and iTunes now. <laughs> 